Welcome to the Movie Planet Season 4, Episode 3. This week we're talking about 1984's This is Spinal Tap. With Joe. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. Yeah, it's just a little turnabout. And Joel. Great, great uh, tall, blonde, geek with glasses. Yeah. Uh, good drama. Great look. Good drama. Good, yeah. Good yeah. drama. Fine. What happened to him? He died. I'm your host, Joe, and with me is the David St. Hubbins to my Nigel Tufnell. How you doing, buddy? I am falling apart. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, for the listeners, this will be my second sixth show that you get to... Uh, embark on. Oh, me, nice. So. <laughs> well, you do well during six shows. Well, thank you. No uh, one really notices, I think. No. My voice is n- is not nearly as sultry and decadent as it was last time I was sick. <laughs> Gosh, I would pay for that voice back. Yeah, well, everybody likes the sexy voice they get when they're yeah. sick. That, Man, that was good. Yeah. Uh, well, this week, I have nominated, this is Spinal Tap, for the mockumentary pantheon of movies. The pantheon is comprised of seven and only seven films per genre. Currently, there are no titles in this pantheon yet, so regardless of what we graded today, I'm newsying this mother... (laughs) (laughs) I almost dropped it in there, and it's going in. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Final tap, welcome. Uh, Now, the higher the grade we give it, the longer it may be staying there. Only a film with a higher grade can kick it out on its ass from the pantheon in the future. So we will discuss the movie, and in an hour or so, we will analyze it and grade it. This is a spoiler-rich podcast, so if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, what's wrong with you? It's the best movie ever. Uh, it's best if you stop right here, watch the movie, and then turn us back on to enjoy our discussion and analysis. Uh, now that we've handled that business, let's get to our movie of the week. Yeah, this week we're talking about 1984's This is Spinal Tap, a movie made for $2.5 million that raked in $4.7 million. Really? It also only played in, at the most, 206 theaters. Wow. Most movies today are released in around 2,000 to 3,000 theaters. Uh, so why it was so like, limited release, I have no idea. Were there any real mockumentaries before this? This was the first one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, and you got something to say about new and old later. Yeah. I saw. Yeah. Uh, written by Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer, and Rob Reiner. Uh, starring Michael McKeon as David St. Hubbins, uh, Christopher Guest as Nigel Tufnell, Harry Shearer as Derek Smalls, and Rob Reiner as Marty DeBerge, and a host of cameos that only enhance the humor in this film, and to list them all would take an additional 10 minutes. Uh, these, unfortunately, are people that are only famous for the 80s, and so if you are under the age of 30, you will have no idea who most of these people are. Uh, most. Mo- okay, so most. Yeah. We're going to do a little Inception to Perception, where we talk about how this movie started as an idea and made its way to the big screen. Don't get on the set, get ready to shoot, and then ask for rewrites. Studios do this crap all the time, and they wonder why they end up with a shit movie. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. Movie? You know, I hate the word movie. I don't make movies, I make films. Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest met while they were in college in New York City in the late 1960s, and they played music together. They were musicians first, before they did anything. Uh, they worked with Harry Shearer and Rob Reiner on a TV pilot in 1978 for a sketch comedy show called The TV Show, which featured a parody rock band called Spinal Tap. Oh. That was it as far as they knew. That was, okay, it would just be funny little shot. Now, during production of the sketch, while being burned with oil from onstage effect, <laughs> McKeon and Guest began to improvise, inventing characters that became David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. That's great. <laughs> Guest had previously played guitar under the name Nigel Tufnell on Michael McKeon and David Lander's album, Lenny and the Squig Tones. If you're not familiar who Lenny and Squiggy are, from Laverne and Shirley. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Michael McKeon was uh, Lenny on the show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the entire film was shot in Los Angeles County over a period of about five weeks. The visit to Elvis's grave was filmed in a park in Altadena with a mock-up of the gravesite, and the band sang Heartbreak Hotel because they could only get the rights to that song. <laughs> they couldn't afford anything else. Uh, Rob Reiner procured $60,000 from Marble Arts Productions to write a screenplay with McKeon, Guest, and Shearer based on the Spinal Tap characters. And they realized after a few days of writing that no script could capture the kind of movie they wanted to make, so they decided instead to shoot a short demo of the proposed film, much like musicians do. They make a demo, and then they shop it around. So they shop this thing around, and nobody wants it except for this guy named Norman Lear, who decides, yeah, this, this is decent enough. We'll, we, we'll spend $2 million on it. Why not? Yeah. Virtually all the dialogue in this film is improvised. 
Uh, actors were given outlines indicating where scenes would begin and end and character information necessary to avoid contradictions, but everything else came from the actors. And as often as possible, the first take was used in the film to capture natural reactions. That's great. If you think about how much of this film is, if, if, mo- if 90% of it's improvised and they used mostly first takes, think of how many straight faces they had to keep. On those first takes, because of how smooth this movie is. But also, like, explains kind of like how just dry a lot of it is. Because, <laughs> and I'll talk about it later. This is a movie you have to watch two to three times at least mm-hmm. if you like truly want to understand it. Because, you know, I watched it the first time, I was like, it was good. Yeah. And then I, you picked up more the second time and more the third, and that it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, they're not expecting the dialogue, they're not expecting how to respond. Yeah. And I'm sure in order to keep a straight face, they just had to. They just had to completely, like, just go total stone face. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. And they pull it off so well. They play aloof so well. Like, they don't know they sound ridiculous. Reiner wanted to list the entire cast as writers on the film because of all this improvisation to acknowledge their contributions. But the Writers Guild said, no, no, no. You only get three or four names. So he put his name in the three guys. Guest McKeon and Shearer were on there, and that was it. Awesome. Uh, something tells me though, Rob Reiner's a good enough guy where he'd be like, listen, I know I can't put all you on here. You're all getting a little bit of extra money. Yeah, I can it. see that. Um, let's see. Veteran documentary ca- uh, cameraman Peter Smokler worked as cinematographer on the film. Smokler had great instincts for camera placement on set, according to Reiner, and is responsible for the film's handheld cinema verite style. Although the cinematographer did not understand what was supposed to be funny about the movie. With Smokler behind the camera, the film was shot not as a feature film, but as a documentary. So it was supposed to be a feature film, apparently. Okay. And because they used this guy, it started to turn into a documentary. Without a script or traditional shooting schedule, of course. So much footage for it was filmed. Over 100 hours of film was shot. Oh, my gosh. It eventually required three editors to complete the film. How have they not released, like, a massive <laughs> cut of this, mil- this movie? There should be a box set with 15 discs. Absolutely. Of all of it. <laughs> uh, inspirations for the film included the documentaries Don't Look Back and The Last Waltz. The famous scene where the band becomes lost backstage... <laughs> was inspired by a video of Tom Petty at a concert in Germany who walked through a series of doors trying to find the stage at a gig but ended up on an an indoor tennis court. (laughs) In post-production, Christopher Guest was very concerned with the placement of finger positions on the band's instruments during the concert scenes and even reshot some footage after the movie was edited to ensure their hands appeared in sync with the music. That's dedication right there. Yeah, it really is. Uh, The character of Janine... David's disruptive girlfriend, the Yoko Ono of the movie, yeah. was added during the production to provide a storyline of the material, in part to mollify studio executives who worried the movie would be plotless. Actress Victoria Tennant was briefly considered for the role, but June Chadwick won the part thanks to her chemistry with the cast and her improvisation skills. This is my favorite part of the making of, and that's the reactions from musicians. Because whenever you make fun of people, you always want to find out what they actually think. Mm-hmm. And... Musicians are very touchy people in that they consider themselves rebels. We rock on. We're, we're awesome. We'll be, we don't care about the establishment. But the minute you poke fun at them, they get all sensitive and very they can't deal with it. Yeah. Uh, the movie cut close to home for some musicians like Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, Jerry Cantrell, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, and Ozzy yeah. Osbourne. All reported that, like Spinal Tap, they had become lost in confusing arena backstage hallways trying to make their way to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> when Dawkins' George Lynch saw the movie, he is said to have exclaimed, that's us. How'd they make a movie about us? Glenn Danzig had a similar reaction when comparing Spinal Tap to his former band, The Misfits, saying, when I first saw Spinal Tap, I was like, hey, this is my old band. That's awesome. On Pete Townsend's 1985 uh, album, White City, a novel, the back cover describes Pete Fountain, a famous guitarist, visiting the title location as seen by an old childhood friend. When Pete mentions an incident where his drummer complained that, quote, the caviar in their dressing room was the wrong viscosity for throwing, the friend notes, this is Spinal Tap, is obviously a true story. <laughs> Lars Ulrich of Metallica told the press conference crowd that the Metallica slash Guns N' Roses 1992 tour seemed so Spinal Tap. The tour was in support of Metallica's own Black album, which, by the way, was an homage to Spinal Tap Smell the Glove. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's announced on there. It says Metallica met with Spinal Tap and discussed how their black album was an homage to Spinal Tap Smell the Glove. That's amazing. I mean, that's how this movie's big amongst musicians. Like, remember we talked about with Sam? Sam was excited about it. Oh, yeah. 
1992 interview, Nirvana explains declining the offer to be a part of the movie Singles. Kurt Cobain goes on to say, there's never really been a good documentary on rock and roll bands. And Dave Grohl then cut in saying, except for Spinal Tap, that was the only rock movie worth watching. <laughs> and Cobain agreed with it. It's because Dave Grohl's the coolest guy on the face of the earth. I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah. Like, if I could live... I'm trying to think... We have those conversations like if you could bring somebody back from the dead, you could live in their shoes. I don't want to. I want to live in Dave Grohl's shoes. Yeah, absolutely. He's, every documentary he does is awesome. No, I would love to just get a cup of coffee with Dave Grohl. YouTube guitarist The Edge said in the documentary It Might Get Loud that when he first saw Spinal Tap, quote, I didn't laugh, I wept. Because it summed up what a brainless swamp big label rock music had become. But my favorite here is, according to a 1997 interview in Spin Magazine with Aerosmith rhythm guitarist Brad Whitford, he says... The first time Steven Tyler saw it, he didn't see any humor in it. When the movie was released, Aerosmith most, Aerosmith's most recent album, Rock in a Hard Place, depicted Stonehenge prominently on the cover. Yes. <laughs> yes. And around that time, I'm pretty sure Steven Tyler and Joe Perry had no idea what was going on. No. They were the toxic twins. They were constantly stoned. Yeah. I was funny. I, being from Johnson City, that used to be a big area where a lot of musicians came through. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah. In Rush's documentary, Snakes and Arrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, oh, you you know, we finally got to play large venues like Johnson City in New York. We're like, that's the first one you say? <laughs> the large and, venue. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, Ragdoll by Aerosmith was shot there and mm-hmm. um, ACDC and everyone played there. And I asked my dad, I was like, oh, did you ever go see Aerosmith? He's like, never wanted to. I was like, why is it you couldn't understand a word they were saying? He's like, it was, he said they were, during that era when he was in town, he's oh. like, they were so messed up. Yeah. The concerts weren't even enjoyable. I mean, he said like he went to like Ario Speedwagon and Rush, and he's like they were great. Mm-hmm. He said, but at that point in time, Aerosmith was so messed up on so much that they're nothing like who they are like modern day. Yeah, one of the stories I heard about them was that they actually were opening. They were they were they were an opening act on tour with Led Zeppelin, and Led Zeppelin sent them home no because way. they were too hard for them. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like when you've outdone Zeppelin, y- you win. Yeah. <laughs> But if you ever get a chance to hear about the Aerosmith story, read up about it, it is pretty fantastic how, where they've been, how they hit rock bottom, and how they then came back again. In a time, probably the last gasp of rock and roll mm-hmm. at, when it, as a full-on genre. Now, there's so few rock and roll bands out there that are worth listening to. I mean, we just talked about Dave Grohl. His is the, I think he's the final one. Yeah. No, he, I saw him in concert a couple of years ago, and they are, in my opinion, they have to be the last real rock group yeah. of the rock metal genre i mean you've got metal bands now and there are a lot of great bands that are experimenting with new things you have metallica it's very heavy but Mm -hmm. as far as rock band like just good rock bands that everybody can listen to i think foo fighters might be the last one i think so at least the the best one right now yeah um do you remember the first time that you saw spinal tap i did my brother used to rent it a lot growing up and so he would watch it but the first time i saw it all the way through was earlier this summer i borrowed it actually i think i borrowed it from you Oh, all right and it was a like a laundry cleanup day where I just didn't want to leave the house. And so I watched it. And if anyone's listening now that has not seen it all the way through or has not seen it, like pay full attention to it. Like carve out time to sit down and watch this movie. Okay. Um, Cause I was, you know, folding laundry, vacuuming, whatnot. And so I laughed, but I was not like, I wasn't rolling. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to watch it again because I felt like it would be a movie that gets funnier each time. And so the second time when I watched it today, mm-hmm. I caught the small things that I chuckled at the first time, and I really laughed at this time. <laughs> um, it is funny. I was talking to one of my coworkers, and she was saying the funny thing about Spinal Tap. She said oh, it was hilarious when it came out. We all loved it, but the thing that made it so funny is they didn't tell everybody it was a mockumentary. Yeah, they said when it came out, it was just a movie, and so people would come back from the theater and they said, I, "We don't know if Spinal Tap's <laughs> real or not." This can't be real. Yeah. So like, the and that even that made it even funnier because I had like watched the first half and then went home and watched the second half and watching it with that idea in mind of maybe not knowing if it's real or not makes yeah. it that much funnier. Well, it's like the Blair Witch Project. You know, when Blair Witch came out, it was the first found footage horror movie that was mainstream, and yeah. it was marketed in a way because it was pre-internet, really, that this is real yeah. that you're about to see, and they didn't let the secret go for about a week into the theater. And then they were like, okay, it's actually fake. But it, it still remains one of the most horrifying movies because of the marketing that happened with it. Yeah. 
Uh, this and again, they didn't know they were making a documentary. They thought they were making a feature film, and it just turned into one. Yeah. Um, what was that? Paranormal Activity was the other one that. Yes. Ugh, don't don't care for it. Never oh. tried it. Uh, well, but what about you? When was the first time you saw it? Uh, hey, this was a. I, I saw this movie, and I remember seeing this movie when I was in high school. Uh, my uncle brought it over, and he was like, "Hey, you know, you got to see this. You know, it's really good." And I saw the grainy picture, and I was like, oh, "This is gonna suck," you know, and. He, he, he told me to shut up a few times at the very beginning, and I was like, okay, fine. I took it all in, and I was like, oh, my God, I must have this. <laughs> and that's when videotapes, unfortunately, were like, yo, here, $20 for a VHS tape. Yeah. I can't it's afford sad. that. But it's a brilliantly funny movie. It's a movie that I think is meant to be seen communally. You need people around you to truly hit every laughter point, I think. That's interesting you say that. Because everybody in the room picks up something different, and when you hear that laughter, you go, oh, my gosh, that was supposed to be funny. Okay. Yeah, definitely with the right audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you... I, w- I watched the second half today with two people that just walked in and hadn't seen the first half. <laughs> it, was, it was a very interesting experience. Oh, I can imagine. But at least one, one was laughing. The other one was, I think, trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> uh, do you want to read the synopsis? Um, or do you want me to do it? Nah, you do it. Okay, I'll do I, it. I don't have a lot of voice anymore. All right. All right. Do you play all? I mean, do you actually play all these or... I play them and I cherish them. Mm-hmm. This is the top of the heap right here. There's no question about it. Look at the look at the flame on that one. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's quite unbelievable. This what this one is just uh, it's perfect. 1959. Uh, you know, it just you can uh, listen. How much is just this? Just listen for a minute. I'm the not, sustain. Listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would though if it were playing because yeah. it really. It's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. Ah, you can go, go and have a bite. No, you'll still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. Can you hold this a sec? You sure. This one, this, of course, is a custom three pickup. Paul, this is my radio unit. Oh, so I, I, see I strap you... this, this piece on, you know, right down in here. when I'm on stage. It's you a know. wireless. Wireless, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I can play without all the marky mark. You can run anywhere on exactly stage with that. Oh, oh, this is special too. It's a, look, see, still got the uh, the old tagger on it. So you've never even played it. See? You just bought it. Don't touch it. I, don't well, touch I, it. I wasn't going to touch it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I, well, don't point even. Don't it even point. Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, can I, I look I, at no. it? No, no. You've seen don't enough of that one. This is a top to a you know what we use on stage, but it's very very special because if you can see. Yeah. The numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most, most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Neophyte director Marty DeBerge presents his rockumentary showcasing the North American tour of aging rock stars Spinal Tap. Band members David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, and Derek Smalls, Smalls form the core of the group with various drummers dying over the years in freak accidents or through spontaneous human combustion. Okay, pause. <laughs> and I'm going to fast forward to the end of the movie. <laughs> in one of their, their last shows where it's like going through the montage of tours, yep. right before Joe Mama, whatever his name is, <laughs> did a... Drummer com- spontaneously combust on stage? Yes, he did. Because <laughs> I'm the only one in the room that caught that. No, and because actually... Because you need that background information. Yeah, let me pull this up here. In the Spinal Tap... Pause for effect. Pausing for effect. In the Spinal Tap DVD show notes, it actually gives you biographies on each character, and then on the bottom, drummer necrology. That's great. Gardening accident, choked on vomit, spontaneous combustion, onstage explosion, missing, presumed dead. Is that Joe Mama? That was Joe Mama. Yep. And then we get Richard Rick Shrimptum. No one knows what happened to Rick. None of the band members thought to ask each other. We've also heard that he sold his dialysis machine for drugs and we assumed he died. (laughs) (laughs) We just assumed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The band is set 
to promote their new record, Smell the Glove, <laughs> featuring Disgusting. a degrading photograph of a woman in bondage smelling a glove. Uh, let's see if I've got it right here. Yes. Ian, you put a grief naked woman on all fours with a dog collar around her neck and a leash and a man's arm extended out up to here holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, You don't find that sexist? This is 1982, That's right, 1982. Get out of the 60s. We don't have this mentality anymore. Well, you should have seen the cover they wanted to do. I don't care what they wanted to do. It's those little moments that if, you do, if you're not paying attention, you miss the joke. Yeah, The absolutely. stamp at the end of it. Because in any other movie, you see two people talking and you zone out. Exactly. You go refill your water, your drink, whatever it is, because <laughs> it's just two people talking at a party. That's such a great part of the movie. Yeah. Fran Drescher, too. I was about to the say nanny. That, I, the voice. I knew the voice. Yeah. And... I was trying to spot the face, but that's the first one where they like just make her look totally normal, and they don't make her look like look like a Jersey clown. Yeah, she's not a caricature of herself no. at that point. Yes, gosh. Uh, the cover is deemed too offensive for many chain stores, and is redone in one hundred percent black, lacking a band logo or even a title. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Nigel Black album. Yes, yeah, I'm pretty it. sure it's not Nigel. Derek Small says something to the effect of, "Wow, I can see my reflection on both sides of it. It's really shiny leather." <laughs> <laughs> Their, few, their first gig is a huge success selling out New York City's Madison Square Garden. Before the tour begins, their promoter holds a huge party for the band as they've successfully completed their latest record, Smell the Glove. The record company CEO toasts Spinal Tap success by tapping into the millennium, which coincidentally is the name of their tour. <laughs> it's in this one. Isn't this where they... Uh... Oh, this is the party they're talking about. This is the party. We see two cameos here. We, we have two mimes walking around as waiters. If you look closely, there's a backstage shot of these two guys. One of them is Billy Crystal, and the other is a very young Dana Carvey. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so we're already starting to get like a mountain of cameos showing up. Uh, next, they're, in, they're being interviewed by Dave, Marty DeBerge. We learn the history of Spinal Tap from the beginning of the band's origins through the present day. It seems that they've gone through a number of lineup changes in drummers. One spontaneously combusted while another choked on his own vomit. And they, tr- they almost treat the drummers as though they're just second-rate citizens because they don't talk about them with any reverence whatsoever. No. <laughs> in fact, and, and I believe it's at this point, if you, you see the shot of them, they're all sitting there in front of a castle. Like, like it's one of their houses. <laughs> and I think Nigel's wearing a kilt. Um, what's his name? Uh, Derek keeps adjusting his junk, which is a joke later on. It happens at the airport. Yep. <laughs> uh, Spinal Tap is being transported to their next gig. And to pass the time, they're reading the autobiography of Rat Pack member Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> the limo driver has a one-sided conversation with them about Frank Sinatra's history. And they pull up the window in the limo. <laughs> so a lot of people just don't understand uh, the Sinatra story. They can't relate to it. <laughs> what he had to do, what he had to fight to get to that point. <laughs> uh, the next song being played is their smash hit single, Big Bottom. We also learn how Spinal Tap's back catalog was received by critics. Most of the albums received rather mixed reviews, but one album called Shark Sandwich received just a two-word review. Shit Sandwich. <laughs> Their religious rock album, The Gospel According to Spinal Tap, was also rather poorly received. <laughs> I believe it was like the review was something of the effect of on the seventh day God created Spinal Tap, why didn't he just rest? <laughs> uh, but each one of them is taken like every they go through three albums on this where they just knock them down nonstop. And at one point, I'm pretty sure it's during the gospel one, the very next thing said is Nigel going, Well, that's just nitpicky. their next stop takes them to atlanta for the recording industry convention there they learn a couple of gigs were canceled but nothing to be worried about isn't this where they go to the hotel and they were supposed to get seven rooms with on one floor and they got one one room room and seven (laughs) how are we supposed to fit seven people in one bed (laughs) and he the the guys you deal with it manager guy and the manager sitting there yelling at the guy at the front and uh 
He goes, you know, what's wrong with you? you, you, you he, he, he uses a term that you would not be able to use today. He calls him like a fancy pants sissy or something. Oh, yeah. And the guy goes, what's wrong with that? I've grown into who I am, you know? And it ends with a shot like that. But that's another famous guy who's he's done, like, character work. He was in Cocktail as one of the college professors. Uh, it's huh. like if you, you could literally throw a dart at the cast list there and hit that they went on to do something else. Mm-hmm. While there, they are presented with the finished copies of their new album, but are completely shocked that it's all black. It appears that the record label marketing department was completely offended by the proposed cover, as stores have said they flat out weren't going to sell the album, citing it as, quote, filth. Spinal Tap's promoters got into a huge argument with the record label CEO who cites their album cover as sexist. I don't know. this, This could be one of the more prominent roles we see that word sexist show up in a comedy movie. Yeah. It's never really, it's shown up in, you know, regular stream. In comedies, you don't throw that word around back then. Right. It's like throwing racist around. Yeah. Which this movie does at the end, and they're in the credits. They say, some people say that most of your audiences are white. Do you consider yourselves racist? He goes, no, no, I call everybody my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, While backstage for their next gig in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Nigel is complaining about the quality, or complete lack thereof, of the food being presented to them. (laughs) Uh, he tells the manager that it's a complete catastrophe that they that they wouldn't that they aren't being served that food either. So it's like the what? tiny bread and the giant <laughs> deli meat, which is a note I have for later. It's such a great such a great back and forth. <laughs> the next song they play is Hellhole, which is rather well received by the theater crowd. During the song, David gets in a rather tense guitar solo and falls to the ground, requiring roadies to pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he busted his back and he couldn't get up. That's what I thought it was too. Uh, the next day, Marty is going over Nigel's massive amounts of equipment that they transport from show to show. He then explains how their amplifiers don't end at 10. They go to 11, which is one louder. Which might be like the biggest like pop culture reference to Spinal Tap. Yes. Has to be. Yeah. It, 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 I'm pretty sure at some point in my teaching career, I've told my kids, no, 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 these go to 11. You know? Yeah. No. The, is this 10 questions? No. These go to 11. Nice. <laughs> Their next gig is in Charlotte, and it proves to be another disaster when their gig is canceled due to a lack of advertising funds. What's that guy's name? <laughs> uh, he says his name 200 times. How I am I forgetting it? Uh, the, the manager, right? Yeah. Yeah, I cannot remember to save my life. Or am I jumping ahead? No, no, no. I, I, the one who's played by Paul Schaefer? Maybe the guy that walks in wearing the Spinal Tap t-shirt and yes. like, he introduces himself to everybody on the bed and says <laughs> the exact same thing every single time. Yeah. Is that Schaefer? It is Paul Schaefer, yeah. No way. Yes, it is. Dang it. Wow, yeah, he's looking. We looked at each other and said, so well, we might as well join up, you know. And, uh, so we became uh, the originals. Right. And uh, we had to change our name, actually. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's another group in the East End called the Originals, and uh, we had to rename ourselves and new originals new originals yeah. and then uh, they became the regulars they changed their name back to the regulars and we thought well we could we could go back to the originals but what's the point <laughs> what's the point <laughs> Artie Artie Fufkin thank you Artie Fufkin yes Artie Fufkin the great Paul Schaefer <laughs> I had no idea that's who that was and I'll be honest with you first time I ever saw him without glasses oh because he's not wearing glasses in it no he's not I'm, as I'm looking through this list, I'm noticing a lot of people that I didn't recognize in the movie. Yeah. Uh, the next interview with Marty, we learn that Spinal Tap has a dwindling audience. At the start of last year's tour, they were booked into 10,000 and 15,000 seat arenas. Now they're being booked into 4,000 and 6,000 seat arenas. They proceed to take out their frustrations by destroying their hotel room. As Nigel is on the phone to their promoter, they learn that a number of their gigs across the Midwest have been canceled. But thankfully, they are saved when Derek informs them that a song they recorded in the past called Listen to the Flower Power, or Listen to the Flower People, was being played on the local radio. But their happiness is short-lived when the announcer refers to them in the, quote, Where Are They Now segment. (laughs) (laughs) And that's another thing that's great about this is you don't just see them as Spinal Tap. You see the iterations that they went through. Like, The the one where they the, the black and white shot of them playing, or you know, and it's so sassy, and it's very much what you see on like Ed Sullivan, right? And then you go to the flower one, and it's exactly what you expect out of the sixties, nineteen late sixties shot of music. You know, they had like the sitar playing. Yeah, <laughs> it reminded me of a Dewey Cox. Yes. When Walk Hard goes through all of those stages. Yes. Which is, goes back to, I guess, Spinal Tap, which eventually, I guess, goes back to the Beatles. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, 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 they, they did a great job in this of capturing that rock aesthetic. Yeah. And that they're not always this. They had to get to that point. Um, thankfully, Spinal Tap has managed to secure a gig in Memphis. There they pay tribute to Elvis Presley by making a stop at Graceland and singing Heartbreak Hotel, though none of the board band members can remember the words nor sing in harmony. <laughs> Another Gosh, great shot. <laughs> Standing in front of the king's grave, and all you're thinking about is, can we harmonize properly? <laughs> that's almost even more perfect because that's the only song they could afford. So they're just like proving that like the only song they couldn't afford, they could afford, they don't even know the words to. There is something magical that happens, though, when they're doing this harmonizing, and that is... The guy who plays Nigel Tufnell, he's trying to harmonize with David St. Humphreys, and his harmony keeps getting peppier and peppier and happier and happier. (laughs) Uh, Spinal Tap's first single was released in 1968, and they've been a band ever since, and evolving with the times and trends, though the recent times have not been kind to them. We also learn of another drummer that died to a mysterious death. This one spontaneously combusted on stage. Spontaneous combustion, what happens like uh, at least a dozen times every year, is just not well publicized. <laughs> yeah. Is that what they say? Uh, yeah. Uh, at their next gig in Milwaukee, they play a sound check where they play another song from their flower people era called Give Me Some Money. They're finally presented with a box of copies of Smell the Glove when they're stunned. Did I just read this? <laughs> they, they, did, did these people just like double it? I think so. Oh, my gosh. Hey, everybody. We've been spinal tapped. Boo. Uh, <laughs> They're stunned to learn that the studios decided to go with their decision to release the album cover in all black instead of the proposed and very controversial cover, blah, blah, blah. Their next song is called Rock and Roll Creation, and Derek gets trapped in his pod during the entire song, and the roadies desperately try to free him with no success. And then once they finally get him loose, the other band members go back into the shells, and Derek is on stage by himself. Derek runs back to his as it's clothing, it's closing and gets his arm stuck, and then reaches his other arm out and holds up a fist in triumphance. <laughs> <laughs> That's another... The stage excerpt, that's yes. huge also because they're so, like, motley crew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the next interview with Marty DeBerge interviews Spinal Tap's drummer. There he asks whether or not the history of Spinal Tap drummers has him afraid of what might happen to him. He says it's no big deal. On the tour bus to the next gig, the band throws a huge party. And uh, I don't remember this party, honestly. <laughs> no. Is this where the, the girlfriend was on board at this point? Oh, must, must have been. And the guys were all playing a game in the back, and he wanted to go play. David said, we wanted to go play. I think so. wouldn't let him. <laughs> <laughs> While in Chicago, they have a record signing, but no one shows, upsetting the band and the promoter, Paul Schaefer, yeah. blames himself. Spinal Tap manages to secure their next gig in Cleveland. Hey, Cleveland. Ohio. Unfortunately, as the crowd is demanding their pl- they play, they get lost making their way to the stage repeatedly. <laughs> the next gig in Albuquerque proves to be particularly embarrassing as the only gig they've managed to secure has them opening for a magician at a rich kid's birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> this causes a rift in the band. Uh, are we at the puppet one where the puppets got headlining over them? I think so. <laughs> the next gig, all hell breaks loose. They play one of their most famous songs, a tribute to the ancient Stonehenge monument in northern England, complete with dwarf dancers and live props. The live prop happens to be a life-size replica of Stonehenge, according to Nigel's design. 18 feet, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, thanks to a typo, the Stonehenge monument actually appears 18 inches. Then, <laughs> And even better... The dwarves were not planned by the band. The manager threw them out there because he thought it would be funny. Oh <laughs> you don't gosh. do comedy during a rock show. Oh <laughs> and things only get worse from there. Their next gig takes them to San Diego and the Miramar Air Force Base, where they're the entertainment for a weekend reception. Unfortunately, again, the crowd isn't interested, and a frustrated Nigel finally walks off the stage as, I believe, isn't the radio from the planes coming through their amps as they're playing? Oh, I missed that. <laughs> like, they're in the middle of the song, and all of a sudden you start hearing, uh, complain, blah, 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 please return to the hangar. <laughs> uh, and then the last gig on the U.S. tour is their worst to date as they're opening for a puppet show at the zoo. (laughs) Finally, at the group's last show, Nigel reappears with a message from Ian. The single Sex Farm is a big hit in Japan, and promoters would be interested in booking the band for a tour there. Spinal Tap is thus reborn, even as another drummer explodes and Joe Mama takes over. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the movie, all over the place and sometimes repeated. Now, according to our good people at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato, reading, tomato meter rating of 
The critics, on average, give this one an 8.6 out of 10. That's one of the better ratings we've had of any show lately. I think it is. Probably the best. <laughs> uh, the audience score, which is the average rating the audience gave this film, is a 4 out of 5 with a 92% agreeing it's a 3 or higher. So this is clearly a masterpiece, according to critics. Yeah. Uh, Joel, what did you think after watching this film? It's, it's funny. It is, it is 80s comedy, and I think 80s comedy does something better than any other decade in that it does get better every time you watch it. Yeah. It, it's, it reminds me of Caddyshack because if you watch the first 45 minutes of Spinal Tap, you're just like, it's nostalgia, you're laughing, you mm-hmm. have all the lines. And then, you know, it, to, the end of the movie, you kind of like forget about not as much, but like with Caddyshack, you do because so many times, like, oh, I don't have a lot of time. I'll start Caddyshack. And right. so, like, you watch, you love the movie so much, you'll watch the first 30 minutes, even <laughs> if it means you don't get to finish the movie. Um, it is funny. I love this movie. Uh, for me, toe tap and fun. And damn funny. Yeah. Like, all the songs are good. And that's the funny thing about this mo- movie is that people, again, you said, didn't know this was a mockumentary. They released an album. That people took... It was played on the radio. I knew the Spinal Tap songs before I knew the Spinal Tap Did you really? Yeah. I did not know um, that. Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. Yeah. I've... I love that song. I had heard it. And I... So I... When I asked my brother about it, I was like, so they made a movie about the band Spinal Tap? He said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And he just laughed and he told me the whole story. I was like, that's hilarious. Yeah. The... uh, And I believe that one, that was like their Kiss tribute. That was like... That was Kiss back then. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Spinal Tap ended up being like Guitar Hero and Rock Band and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I think Stonehenge is on Guitar Hero, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so (laughs) is that one, I think. Oh, is it really? Uh, I think so. I think it is. Unless it's just Detroit, Detroit Rock City. It's kind of the same song. Yeah, it's kind of the same. Yeah. All right. Well, we're not going to do that the awards get it right because they didn't. They didn't win Best Picture and they should have. So, no. No. They no, did they not. didn't. Okay. All right. All right. All right. On to our next segment titled Top 3, Bottom 3. This is where we pick our top three things we love or scenes we like in this movie, and then we choose three things we dislike about the film or that we find the weakest. Let's start with the top three. Joel, what are your top three things that you want to highlight in this movie? Oh, man. My top, my number three is, I'm going to repeat myself when my uh, colleague told me that they didn't tell the general public it was a fake documentary. Yeah. I love that. Um, smart. I love that I love being able to watch the movie through the eyes of someone who's trying to figure out if the movie's real or not uh, my number two Nigel <laughs> but the band in general love the bass player but I love how serious they take the dumbest topics and conversations the small bread with the large deli meat um, saving his gum for later on his finger while he's eating <laughs> He's like, I just put it on the table. Like, well, if I put it on the table, I forget it. <laughs> um, and number one, just like how the real movie in the format of a fake documentary made real music for a pretend band that ended up being really good radio tracks that are still played on real radio today. Yes. Like I love that Spinal Tap was such a joke, it became real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's my number one. All right. So what about you? What are uh, your uh, top three? My number three is the improvisation is so flawless because if it truly, if it's their first take, it feels like the first take because it's natural conversation. It's people building off of what they said before. You hear a lot of repetition of jokes as they say them, and then they build off the next one because that's what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, yeah, it's a good idea right there. Yeah, Stonehenge. Oh, Stonehenge, yes, we yeah. can do this. And, uh, so I love that. It's amazing that they ended up using so many first takes, though. I want the other 90 hours, though, or 90, yeah. 98 hours. Yeah, definitely. My number two is the number of cameos in this film. Uh, Dana Carvey and Billy Crystal as the mime waiters are hysterical. Like Billy Crystal just like <laughs> nailing Dana Carvey. Go, you're not doing the the dead bird or whatever it is. And my number one is the aloofness of the rock stars in everything they do. These amps go to eleven, and they're serious. The album cover being offensive, and they want it. The Stonehenge act with a little person because they think it'll put the rocks in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Shark sandwich, no shit sandwich. Uh, it's got so many parts, and you know, I said the first one was the amps go to eleven. You're right; it is the most famous part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the when you when you do those like Oscar clip montages, they they always have that one in there. Yeah. These amps go to eleven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about the bottom three. Vent, Joel. Well, I figured I have to get a little nitpicky on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my number three: uh, British people can be unattractive. Yes. Um, Americans can too. Don't want to. You know, but British yeah. people, yeah. We, all, we don't put our uggos on screen. Um, <laughs> uh, number two, I, lo- I think I like old Rob Reiner better. Okay. Now, this is coming from someone I watched uh, uh, All in the Family growing up. Mm-hmm. 
But I say that not in saying that I don't like Rob Reiner in this film, but if you've watched Rob Reiner on New Girl especially, oh and, yeah, and his face and the way he reacts to a new generation of like young people mm-hmm. and like watching him, like his acting and trying to process this millennial generation is so great. Mm-hmm. I would love to see now Rob Reiner trying to like process these young British rockers. And I think that <laughs> dynamic would have been great. Well, um, he also played Max Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh. Remember, he was Leonardo DiCaprio's no, father. No, I actually never saw Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, really? That was one like where I was in that live. Everyone told me, they're like, nah, you don't need to see it. Oh, you need to see it. Yeah. I mean, I will at some point. Um, he was in Dickie Roberts, former child star. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, I also love his dad. I love Carl Reiner. Okay. Ocean's Eleven. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, What's your and number-, number one, sorry, I went over to IMDb. <laughs> My number one, I feel bad that their drummers keep dying. Oh. Uh, that's sad to me, so mm-hmm. I don't like that. You know, <laughs> for their families and such. Yeah. That's my number one. Uh, what about your bottom three? Uh, well, like most mockumentaries, they tend to go 15 minutes too long. There's always a segment where you're kind of like, hey, they really didn't need this. And you could, excise, you could probably excise 15 minutes from this and get the same film. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, though they tried to make a story out of it, I don't think you need the girlfriend in there. You don't. I think if you had had Paul Schaefer be that other manager that took him in a different direction... Mm-hmm. and broke up the band, I would have been okay with that. I 100% agree. Yeah. The girlfriend is where I always lose interest. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my number two is, why the hell was this movie not mass-released in theaters? It could have been more well-known today. Yeah. And it's a shame it's not. Uh, in fact, most people just think the movie's called Spinal Tap, not this right. is Spinal Tap. I call it Spinal Tap. Yeah. And my number one is, the stage shows are too small at the beginning. I think they're too, like, you can just tell it's a small venue. But on a separate note, this movie needs a sequel so friggin' bad. That's like a reunion tour with the same guys like old bands do all the time. Ooh, that would be funny. Yeah. If they're all still alive, bring them all back for like, okay, it's been 30 years. We're supposed to do a... Maybe they're like opening for like Ario and Journey and all yeah. of them. They're like, yeah, we, we finally got another gig. <laughs> or maybe just make one out of the other 98 hours of film you have. Please do. Yeah, Release that box huh, set. Huh. Hmm. Uh, it should be said, though, they did do another movie that had a lot of music in it. It was A Mighty Wind. And A Mighty Wind, was, it was a folk music parody documentary, which is hysterical also. It's got a lot of famous people in it today, uh, including, oh, who was the... Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy's in it. Uh, who's the tall blonde lady who was a 40-year-old virgin? Uh, Played uh, Steve Carell's manager. Jane Lynch. Yes. Jane Lynch. Yeah. She does this interview that is so brilliant because I'm pretty sure it's improvised where she's like, yes, before I was doing folk music with my friend here, I was an actress in some rather risque movies. And the whole thing is spoken like it's an NPR show. So it's very low key. They're all folk music people. Yeah. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, maybe this is the sequel to Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap because it's the same three guys playing in a band. Yeah. And it's not. They're three different, completely different people. But they're all playing the same instruments. <laughs> <laughs> so who's the audience for this film? I would say film watchers that want to understand past pop culture and kind of what has brought us to where we are now, but yeah. also rock fans with a good sense of humor. Yeah, you need a sense of humor if you're a rock fan. Yeah. I have rock fans, if there are any left. Uh, and those that love movies like A Mighty Wind or uh, Best in Show. They're great parody movies. Anything that Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and... Uh, whoever plays Derek Smiles is Harry Shearer do. If those three are in a movie, you go see it. You know what you're getting. It's going to be a funny documentary. Uh, but movie report card, A, B, C, D, F, mockumentary feature film genre. And there's, there's really not a whole lot in there, but no. you, I didn't know Borat was considered that, but <laughs> Borat is that. Yeah, I would. Um, uh, so Joel, what's yours? I really like this. The second time I watched it, I truly believe that it is a film along the likes of, you know, Caddyshack, um, that I mentioned earlier, you know, it's only going to get better each time you watch it. Mm. It's very well done. It's a very well done mockumentary. Um, and Rob Reiner is great. Um, <laughs> the way he put all this together and was able to manage all the improv and everything is, is super. Um, which strangely, I was having a hard time between A and A minus only because it was so enjoyable. But as a movie, I was trying to think like, was there an actual plot? Like if I'm trying to like if I'm trying to grade a movie, do I need to like say that it has a plot? Because like I remember at one point like we knocked something down. He's like, "Well, does it 
is it does it have a plot? No, because we're going to deduct the points. <laughs> and then I asked myself, like, do mockumentaries even have plots? I'm trying to think of any movie I've watched. You just like follow along a journey. It's just chronicling it. Just, it. Yeah, it, yeah, and so I was like, so as an overall movie, I was like, okay, like I mean, I lose interest at times. So it's like maybe an A minus or B plus, mm. but. The fact that we're in the mockumentary genre, I haven't seen one better. And I think that of all you-mentaries, <laughs> like all of them drag at some point. Yeah. Uh, every single informative piece, because it's not meant to just entertain you and there really aren't like amazing um, scene changes, anything like that. It's, it's, a, mo- it's a documentary. Yeah. Um, because it's all information. I would be interested to see one that's this good decades later. Okay. You're not, I mean, we're over 30 years past this movie and it still holds up. Um, so we'll have to review Borat to see how that measures up here in about 15 years. Well, yeah. But uh, for me, this is an A. It It is an A in the mockumentary feature film genre. And I, I'm going to mention one that I think comes pretty close to it because they modernized it for what it is, and that's Popstar. Popstar yeah. modernized Spinal Tap because that's what it is like now. Yeah. Um, for me, this movie is the godfather of mockumentaries. It's where they started. It's pretty timeless. The fact that a movie based on a fake rock group ended up being taken seriously is pretty fantastic. <laughs> the main three, Michael McKeon as David St. Hubbins, Christopher Guest as Nigel Tufnell, and Harry Shearer as Derek Smalls, will end up making massive careers from this movie. I have to give this film an A because it is the Jaws of mockumentaries. Shark movies are always compared to Jaws as coming up short. Mockumentaries are consistently considered not reaching the bar of Spinal Tap even today. Right. Uh, Pop Star is the only one that I think comes close because it's a music one. Uh, Borat, though, you mentioned Borat. If you just go by strict mockumentary, not just music based, Borat's up there too. Oh, it's so good. Um, there isn't a real story here, but there never really is a story in a documentary either. No. And the hard thing about a mockumentary is that when you watch a documentary, you're watching something that you already know of. And you have a base interest in already. Right. In a mockumentary, you don't know what it is. Yeah, so that's a really good point. It's hard to... You know, the buy-in is a little bit different. You have to be really damn good to keep people in the theater for a mockumentary. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's simply chronicling the exploits of the band in complete parody. It's quotable. It's funny. Nothing can touch it in the genre yet. We'll I, see what Borat does. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty... I would, I'm giving this an A, uh, and but I would I just a heads up, I would give Popstar an A minus. Popstar is pretty funny. Popstar is a movie that the second time you watch it, the third time you watch it, it's just like this. You keep picking up different things along mm-hmm. the way. Um, plus, I'm pretty sure the songs in Popstar, they spend a little more time on. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> they were already an established band, too. Yes, they were. Lonely that, Island. This is, the Popstar was their third album? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if this Jizz movie, jizz in my pants. Jizz in my pants. If this movie was released on Blu-ray, would you buy it, bin it, stream it, borrow it, or forget about it? Hmm. Blu-ray is interesting with a movie like this because it wasn't filmed in HD. What if it was released and ninety-eight extra hours were added? Holy cow! Um, <laughs> Man, it's funny. Like, and I want to say it's like, okay, I would bin it because this would be a fun movie to watch with my brother, but I don't live anywhere near my brother. Mm. I want to say stream it because this is the, this is, this is the movie you want to find on Netflix. Yes. This is the perfect Netflix movie that you're flipping through and you totally forgot about it. You're like, yes, Spinal Tap. Let's watch it. Um, but as far as like my enjoyment of it, it'd probably be a bin it. If it was, Mm -hmm. if I saw a good deal, then I'd pick up Spinal Tap. Yeah. I got my, I mean, I have the DVD. I haven't bought the Blu-ray because, first of all, it's grainy video anyway. What's the Blu-ray going to really enhance? And honestly, it's fine the way it is. The menu is hysterical. It starts off black and it's just the three guys riffing off each other, explaining what you're seeing on the menu. (laughs) It's it's almost like Young Frankenstein. It's a nothing flashy, nothing fancy movie that's so funny, but it doesn't care if you think it's funny or not. No. Um, I think that's the beauty in the, this type of comedy. Yeah, it, they're going to make the jokes. It, they don't. It doesn't matter if you think they're funny. It's it's it is the it goes to eleven scene. There are people that will sit there and go, "Why don't they just go to 10? And you, no, this goes to eleven. This goes to 11. that's why it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, but um, <laughs> I've got one more thing to play here. I got to play this quote. 
Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's nitpicking, isn't it? Oh. But that's a long joke to get to the punchline. Right. And you don't get until you hear that retarded sexuality and bad poetry. You're like, where is it going? And then when he hits it with the, that's nitpicking. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't even say it without smiling. He just goes, well, that, that's nitpicking. Which is it? really impressive by the actors. <laughs> no. Gosh. That's a first take. Yeah. That's all we've got time for today, Movie Planeteers. Next show, we'll look at Peter Jackson's King Kong from 2005 for the action-adventure pantheon. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Give us a four- or five-star review. Like us on Facebook or Twitter and follow our Instagram. The opinions expressed on the Movie Planet podcast are those of the individual hosts. The Movie Planet podcast is not affiliated with, prepared for, approved, or licensed by any entity that created any films discussed or reviewed herein. All movie clips and music included in the podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and happy movie watching! <laughs>